I can tell you, I had no plans, zero, to enter the business side of science. That was never on my radar. And in fact, I made fun of a lot of my friends in undergrad saying, you know, accounting, finance, yeah, what's all that about? That was never on my path in the context of professional development. This is NGB Ideas, a podcast about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community. Hi, I'm your host, Jim Wilson, and our guest today is Paramal Naswani, President and CEO of the Toronto Innovation Acceleration Partners. Paramal grew up in Vancouver and Calgary and had his sights set on a career in medicine, but circumstance, timing, and a serendipitous transition from research to business development led to a pivot and a very interesting career path in Canada's life sciences sector. Paramal is one of a handful of people who has a front row seat at the intersection of innovation and commercialization in Canada's life sciences community that provides a unique perspective on where we are and where we're heading. Before we get to our conversation, we'd like to thank the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation and the TMX Group for their support. We would also like to thank our growing list of major sponsors that includes Admari BioInnovations, Omnia Bio, Bay Area Health Trust, Eurofins CDMO Alfora, Nova Nordisk, and Lab Occupier. This episode was recorded in July 2023. Ermal, welcome to NGB Ideas. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure and humbled and honored based on all the leaders you've interviewed so far. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for the gracious words. I appreciate it. You were born in Vancouver, British Columbia, but I read that your parents immigrated to Canada from Nairobi in 1975. If you don't mind my asking, were they born in Kenya? Both my parents were born in Kenya. They both lived in a small town called Eldoret in Kenya and grew up there. My parents had a traditional process in the context of their meeting and, in, and marriage. It was traditional and arranged. That was the process that they went through. And they immigrated to Canada in 1975. That must have been a huge decision. Why did your parents decide to make that move? Do you know what prompted it? Well, I think at the time, my father was an aeronautical engineer, and him and my mom wanted to come to a place where they felt they wanted to grow a family. And in fact, my aunt had already moved to Vancouver in 1970s. This was a natural landing spot in a new country, in a new jurisdiction, and sort of at least having some semblance of family and closeness, they decided to come to Vancouver. In fact, my dad and mom came out in 1974, where my father interviewed with Pacific Western at the time, which through various reincarnations has turned into Air Canada now. He interviewed and had a job opportunity when he came to Canada. Your aunt was here already, so Vancouver was the preferred destination. Where exactly did you grow up? Were you downtown? Were you in the burbs? I was actually born in a suburb in Vancouver called Newest Minister, British Columbia, and raised in a suburb called Surrey, British Columbia, which is quite a large suburb today, but an emerging suburb at the time when we first moved. I hope your parents are still with us. My parents are still with us. They're now in their mid-70s and enjoying retired life after all the hard work. What is your father like? He's an engineer. 
Oh, say no more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he studied in the UK, very traditional engineer, has a very tinkering mindset, very methodical and very structured in his thinking. And certainly interesting growing up in Canada with my father. Love him to death, but certainly was very structured in the way he thought about things. It was great to go through that. And a lot of the structure that I have today and a lot of the discipline that I have today is really driven by my father and the way he brought me up. Your mom, I understand she worked as a paralegal at one point. What's her name? What is she like? Yeah, so my mom is, her name's Usha, and she's a very caring, motherly lady. And for the first few years, she actually didn't work. Spent time with both myself and my younger sister as we grew a little bit older. In fact, they ended up recruiting my grandparents from Africa to come stay with us in Surrey while my mom got some education and did some classwork to become a paralegal and started working. Both of my parents were working from when we were very young. And in fact, my sister and I were both raised by my grandparents. Wow. So that was a busy household. It was a busy household. There was six of us in a bungalow style home. It was a very close-knit family. My father, as an engineer, used to work shift work, and so he'd work night shift, and my mom would work during the day, and we'd be raised and going and coming to school with my grandparents. Sounds like ambition and hard work is something ingrained in your family. Absolutely. That, the discipline and the perseverance is certainly something that my parents instilled in us and continues today. Now, I have to ask, would your wife say you're more like your mother or your father? I think my wife would say I'm more like my father, certainly very meticulous, very methodological, very structured in the way I do things. I'm not a handyman like my father, but I can tell you in my day-to-day, I approach it very similarly from a structured and methodological perspective. Where did you go to high school? I'm thinking high school is in the early 90s for you, correct? Yeah, I did high school in 1990 to 93. In fact, in 1985, we moved from Vancouver to Calgary. My dad's job took him to Calgary, and so we made the move from Vancouver to Calgary in 1985. I believe grade five, grade six was in Calgary for me, and all the way up to undergrad was in Calgary for me. I went to high school called Dr. E.P. Scarlett in Calgary. It was a great school. I would say my claim to fame there was swimming. I was a swimmer, was on the high school swim team, and spent a lot of time in, in the pool that was attached to the school. I'm guessing that you won more than your fair share of races. My backstroke was my favorite stroke in the context of racing, and so represented the high school at multiple events and multiple competitions. Over the three years that I was there, had some awards and recognitions, for sure. Were you up early in the morning, training in the pool? Were you late at night? One of those super fit swearers? I certainly wish I continued that. Training was early in the morning, 5.30, 6 a.m. in the pool, training for a couple hours, and then off to school, which was connected. And that discipline, again, is really what drives and what continues in my day-to-day life. I'm an early riser, early sleeper. I'm not the one that will burn the midnight oil, especially during the week. I'm an early riser, and that's where I find that I have the most time for myself, and I get the most thinking and reflection done. I'm guessing you've got more than a subtle competitive streak in you, which I'm betting helps you in your current job. Yeah, competition as a swimmer, as an academic that really enjoyed science and math in my high school and and university years, 
certainly some healthy competition is always part of my pedigree and, and always the way I think about pushing myself and driving forward in the context of all aspects, whether it be a professional or personal level. So you attended the University of Calgary between 1994 and 98, and you completed a Bachelor of Science degree, correct? Yeah, I completed a Bachelor of Science degree in zoology, actually, so a lot of animal studies and had the traditional desire of becoming a doctor. Traditional Indian family, either you're a doctor or you're an accountant or you're a lawyer and had aspirations and dreams of becoming a doctor. I was very heavily invested in science and math and those were certainly the core areas that I focused on in high school and, and university. That was really the drive at the time and finished the University of Calgary in 1997-98. After graduating, you returned to Vancouver and pursued a Master of Sciences degree at UBC. You did a bit of a pivot, too. Yeah, so my competitiveness and my perseverance didn't get into medical school after four years of undergrad, but I still felt that there was an opportunity that I wanted to pursue. What was really interesting is in my last year of undergrad, I actually had an opportunity to do an applied research project as one of my electives and actually got to really experience research firsthand. Of all things, I was doing research on the molecular effects of environmental hormones on gene expression in fish. Had a chance to work a lot with dissecting fish and learning lots of the traditional molecular techniques that are second nature to research now. But that really got me excited about research and the opportunity for research and applications of research. I still had the dreams and vision of going to medical school, but decided that pursuing a research career might be an additional angle or an opportunity to get me there. And based on what I did in the last year of my undergrad, I really enjoyed the aspect of research. But what I really wanted to do in the context of that research was practical applications, human applications of research. You know, I was doing work on goldfish and fish, which is certainly have aspects of environmental considerations. But I wanted to take that to the next level and think about it to my medical dreams and visions. Wanted to take that to the level of applications in human science and human biology. I actually got accepted to join the lab, a very esteemed and established scientist at the time named Peter Leung at the University of British Columbia, where he was looking at molecular mechanisms of infertility in females. And so I was really intrigued by the work he was doing and got accepted to join his lab with a scholarship and full stipend for two years to do my master's degree. At that point... You're sliding down this path into life sciences. Were you still harboring, or maybe was your mother still harboring hopes to <laughs> turn into a medical career? I still had some aspirations of medical school. I actually wanted to pursue sort of a joint MD-PhD program at the time and see if I could combine both research and medical for lots of different reasons that ultimately didn't become the path that I ended up taking. Certainly right up until the end after I graduated from my master's program, that was the intent. But unfortunately, for lots of different reasons, we didn't get there. I would think that a lot of people listening to this would be saying, no, fortunately, you didn't get there. In 1999, you got your first job as a scientist at a small company called Active Pass Therapeutics. After grad studies, and again, with the real core mind and vision of practical applications of science and research. And that's been the theme that has interdigitated all of what I've done. And even today in the context of what I do, 
making sure that whatever we do on a research front has direct practical applications. And so I thought, well, what better way to support that goal and is to work at a drug company or at a biotech company that is actually doing basic research and scientific research to discover and develop therapies for human diseases. This was back now in Vancouver. This was the time where the biotech industry was certainly in its infancy. You had organizations like QLT and Angiotech, which were the bright shining stars in the biotech industry. This was a path that I was looking to explore. And I joined Octopass Pharmaceuticals essentially as a drug discovery scientist looking at drug discovery in the area of neurodegenerative diseases. So you started on the bench. You eventually transitioned to the business side and became manager of business development, which when I read, I thought, well, that's interesting. You've had this focus and you've still got this focus, but you made this pivot. Could you walk us through that transition? What happened? And I would say that's really been one of the defining moments in my career and, and my professional development is really that transition. And in a small biotech company, you get to wear lots of different hats and you get lots of different opportunities. I had an opportunity to be mentored by the CFO of the biotech company, a young finance executive who just finished a stint on Bay Street. He had taken me under his wing. I mean, we were a small seven, 10 person company at the time. We gravitated towards each other in the context of him wanting to learn more about the science and me trying to better understand the types of things that he did and financing and capital and intellectual property. And so he really took me under his wing. He was the one that actually encouraged me to go to business school and get an MBA and learn the lingo associated with business. I can tell you, I had no plans, zero to enter the business side of science. That was never on my radar. And in fact, I made fun of a lot of my friends in undergrad saying, you know, accounting, finance, yeah, what's all that about? That was never on my path in the context of professional development. Those comments came back to haunt you at one point. Exactly. That's the thing. People ask me all the time about my transition from the bench to the business, and it's never a linear path. But the way that I saw that opportunity was really through the mentorship and guidance of someone that really took me under their wing. And I had the opportunity to be mentored by this business executive. What was his name? His name is Andrew Ray. He is a mentor of mine. In fact, we just caught up at Bio in June this year and, and had a chance to have a good catch-up session. Andrew's been a business executive in the biotech industry for the last 20 plus years. He was really one of the critical people in my professional journey that have enabled my pivot to the business side, which again, was never even contemplated. Well, we're going to have to send him a thank you note. So you had this experience on the science side and you had this business degree. Was there a point when you thought, yeah, this is what I want to do? Or, or was it more a gradual realization that I think I'm going down this path? It was really interesting because I've always been characterized as an introvert. But the one thing that I got really excited about and really jazzed about was when I was working at this biotech company and the company decided that it was time to externalize the research and think about aspects of intellectual property, think about partnering, think about business development. And they needed a scientific lead to support that in the context of external facing due diligence and marketing to companies. That's where I got really excited and engaged about the opportunity to meet with other people at larger companies, investors, 
and share my story and discovery and passion around the bench research that I had done and the discoveries that we'd made and the molecules that we had identified. That was really that point for me is that I really enjoyed talking about and selling the science in the context of discovery and what had been done and, and engaging with third parties, large companies, pharma, investors. That was the defining moment for me when I really sort of said, this is what I want to do. I want to be on the business side of science. And Andrew, my mentor at the time, was extremely supportive. And, you know, I was on this path to doing business school and getting my MBA and it kind of all came together, but certainly not a linear path. Hi, it's Jim. Coming up after a quick break, we'll talk with Paramol about how a global economic meltdown forced him to reconsider his career path. Before we get back to today's show, we'd like to remind our listeners this podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit. NGBI is an in-person speakers event for leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community, and it's taking place at the Hamilton Convention Centre on the first Monday in October. For details and to reserve your tickets, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. So you were attending Simon Fraser for your MBA at the time on a part-time basis while you were working full-time. Absolutely. So encouraged to do my MBA by Andrew Ray, my mentor, and he was alumni of SFU and had lots of positive things to say about the program. It was a journey to get into the MBA program. I had to write my GMATs, just like in medical school, you had to write your MCATs. And just like in my tries for medical school, it took me more than once to write my MCATs and took me more than once to write my GMATs to get the right scores, be able to get accepted to Simon Fraser's executive program, but got there and got it done. And as I look back on it, it was uh, an extremely transformational experience. Now, about the same time, you also got married. Yeah. Her name is Priya. I had the opportunity to meet my wife very serendipitously in Vancouver. I was out just doing some retail therapy and shopping for a birthday present for my father. And at the time she worked in retail at the Bay and she was helping me find a present for my dad. And you spent how much money that day? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I got to the till to pay for the purchase and at the same time, asked her if she would accompany me for a coffee date, and I guess the rest is history. You see, your sales skills are pretty honed, too. Always selling, <laughs> absolutely. In 2004, you had an opportunity to join the Technology Transfer Office at UBC, the University of British Columbia, in Vancouver. And How did that opportunity come about? This was really my first experience. I was at ActivePass. The company had raised $40, 50000000 million in venture capital. We had investors like Ventures West, GrowthWorks, life sciences leaders like Nancy Harrison were on our board. And the company went through some difficult times and was not able to go on and raise their Series B financing. The company that I was at went from 45 people to five people in a matter of a day. We all got called into a boardroom and were handed our packages. Going into it, young, naive me, I thought, oh, maybe they're going to announce a big Series B financing and everything's going to be great. Well, went into the boardroom and it was the exact opposite. We were told that we were all being terminated and here are your packages. 
That was a very unique experience. That was the first time I'd ever been in a situation where you saw the rise and fall of an opportunity. And I joined the company when the company was five or six people just being spun out of the University of British Columbia, had the chance to grow with the company up to 40 people, transition into a business development role, and then eventually be transitioned out. Learned a lot through that entire process, but at the time it also opened up an opportunity. I really enjoyed the aspect of business development, licensing, intellectual property management, and really wanted to learn more. I wanted to experience more in that regard. Through my network and through introductions, had the opportunity to meet the vice president of research at one of the major hospitals, Vancouver Coastal Health in UBC, and had an opportunity to join the technology transfer office. They were just getting off their highs of the QLTs and the angiotech days. They were the leading commercialization group in life sciences in Canada, generating royalties from their QLT and angiotech licenses. So it was a great place to be, a great place to learn. I absolutely learned an enormous amount about working with early stage science, gave me the fundamentals and mechanics of intellectual property involved in negotiating multiple license transactions with multinationals, and also got a flavor of the entrepreneurship bug there where we started to think about creating companies in the context of early stage science coming out of the academic environment. What was the coolest idea that came across your desk at that time? Can you recall? I was working on a technology from the BC Cancer Agency at the time, and it was a peptide therapeutic that would be combined with standard of care for pancreatic cancer. And we're actually able to license that technology to a large pharma company that ultimately ended up taking it into clinical trials. I wasn't there at the time that the asset was taken into clinical trials, but put together the deal. That was certainly gratifying to see. It really gave me that bug around always looking at the practical applications of research and how research can be applied to human health. How do we effectively translate and effectively make sure that the research that's happening in the academic environment can be commercialized and effectively developed and productized? In 2006, you got a call from your mentor. What was that call about? You know, I was chatting with him about what was next. If you look at my career path, I always want to learn new things and get involved in opportunities to build out my experiences. Essentially, Andrew, he asked what was next for me, and I was interested in, in learning more about financing more later stage companies. I was involved with earlier stage companies and building companies and licensing IP at the University of British Columbia, but wanted to move a little bit upstream. He introduced me to an opportunity, an investment bank, to do sell-side equity research, and they were looking for an analyst that had some scientific expertise back in 2006 in Toronto. I was in Vancouver, had no idea what investment banking was, no idea what sell-side research was. To join a boutique investment bank and move myself and eventually my family out to Toronto. It sounds like it was a lot of hard work, but a great opportunity. And you and your wife had just started your family about this time, right? Yeah, my daughter was nine months at the time. We had made the decision that it was an opportunity for me to take and grow in Toronto. I spent the first six months flying back and forth between Toronto and Vancouver on a monthly basis. 
working at an investment bank, you have 7 a.m. morning call before the market, being able to respond to any news as an analyst and prepare the trading desk for what stories they were going to go out with to the institutional investors. When I was working in Vancouver, that was a 4 a.m. call every morning. Certainly a lot of hard work and experience for a couple of years that I learned a lot and really appreciated the context of capital markets and institutional investors and emerging later stage companies and how they think about clinical trials. I had a, a great mentor there that I worked with named Doug Lowe, who was the analyst that hired me. It was certainly two years of my life that I don't think I've ever worked long days, six in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, but learned a ton about the industry and capital markets. So you had a newborn daughter at the time who's now, what, about 17? She's 17, absolutely. So she's out learning how to drive now, and hopefully that's going well. I have to ask to borrow my car every day. <laughs> my daughter's name is Kayla. I'm like, Kayla, can I use my car tomorrow to get to work? <laughs> Conversation is, no, Dad, I'll drive 20 minutes to drop you to the subway or the GO train station so I can drive three minutes to drive to school. <laughs> she has a brother, correct? His name's Kian. He's a 10-year-old boy that loves gaming. That's been an interesting thing to deal with as we've gone through COVID and all the online activities. I'd like to go back to your time at this investment bank. You were there for about two years. And then in September 2008, we had a little global economic meltdown happen. How did that affect you at that time? This was another time where I was restructured out of an opportunity. The, the capital markets were in meltdown. Nobody really cared about Canadian biotech. The firm that I was with was restructuring. They offered to have me stay on and network for the next three months, but I was essentially told by December of 08 that I would no longer be at the firm. It was great. They gave me an opportunity for three months to network and leverage the resources that they had to find my next opportunity, and it was certainly a great experience and don't regret it at all, and it was handled very professionally. Well, that's good to hear. And through that networking, you were introduced to some people at Mars, and they were just getting this thing going called Mars Innovation. When I left at the biotech company I worked for and met the VP research at Vancouver Coastal Health, his name was Bernie Bressler, stayed in touch. And as I was leaving the investment bank, I reached out to my network. And one of the people I reached out to was Bernie back in Vancouver and very well connected to the ecosystem. And introduced me to Ilsa and Tony at Mars Discovery District at the time. Who were Ilsa and Tony for our listeners? Ilsa Turnicket is the founding CEO of Mars Discovery District, and Tony Redpath was her right hand, and he was the vice president at Mars Discovery District at the time, and this was December 2008. Mars Discovery District opened its doors in 2006. In 2008, I met Ilsa and Tony, and they were just getting this organization called Mars Innovation off the ground. It was a new experiment, another exciting opportunity in the context of working with the University of Toronto and the hospitals to see how we could enhance and optimize commercialization outcome from University Ave here in, in downtown Toronto. And they just received a large injection of capital from the federal government of Canada through their Centers of Excellence program. It was just getting started. It was a great opportunity to combine the background that I had in the technology transfer and early stage commercialization 
with more financing and company creation activities and institutional investors. And then also the operational role that I actually had at a biotech company being embedded within a biotech company and going from four or five people that spun out from the university and grew to a 40 person company. I thought it was a great opportunity to bring all those experiences together and contribute to the ecosystem. And in December of 08, they asked me to join as a consultant. Hi, it's Jim again. We'd like to take a moment to talk about the cause behind this podcast. And that cause is McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. If you are familiar with MCH, it's probably because you have a child who needed their services. And if that is the case, you already know about the great care this hospital provides for families in need. McMaster Children's Hospital is one of the top critical care pediatric facilities in Canada. If you are interested in providing financial support for a very worthy cause, we encourage you to look at supporting this organization. For more information, please go to hamiltonhealthsciences.ca slash McMaster hyphen children's hyphen hospital. Okay, let's get back to the show. You've mentioned a few times leaning on your network and talking to your mentors. I'd like to take a moment to dive a little deeper into that for our listeners who may just be in universities doing degrees or just graduating and trying to figure out their professional paths. How important is it to develop a network and how do you go about it for those who haven't the faintest idea what we're talking about? I think networking is really critical. As I reflect on my career and my journey, which certainly wasn't linear, but if I look at every aspect of the opportunities that transpired, it was really because I was able to lean into my network and they made introductions for me. I don't think I've yet applied for a job from an online post. It's all very much been based on my network. It is critical and has been critical. When I started at Active Pass Pharmaceuticals, this is where it started for me with my mentor. He really started connecting me to other people in the community and the ecosystem started attending events, conferences, had the opportunity to continue to just meet people and interact with people. And it's a process that you engage and you meet and you find people that have complementary experiences to what you have and you maintain those relationships, you leverage those relationships, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back type of things. And you build these relationships over time. And you continue to nurture them and stay in touch with these people because it's part of the business. There's no easy way to do it except person by person, event by event, conference by conference. I pride myself on the network. You know, in the old days, we had business cards that we'd get. Those are all electronically entered now into my CRM. And every time I connect with people, I always document it and stay connected. So that's really critical. It's a stepwise build. A lot of people think it's just about showing up and it's not. It's about engaging. You have to say hi. I've spoken on previous podcasts about a sister of mine who unfortunately passed away a number of years ago, but she would go into a room with a friend and after an hour they'd leave and the friend would say, well, I didn't really know anyone. And my sister Farrell would have said, I knew most people. And the difference was she said hi. And that's the critical piece. Absolutely. And, and that was the goal for me in the early days. I'd walk into a room and I'd have to leave with at least 10 business cards. As painful as it may be initially, you got to learn. 
And I would also add to that saying hi, absolutely critical and important, but it takes time to build the relationship. So you have to nurture the relationships. It's not a one-time thing. Also, identifying the people that you connect with, identifying the people that you have complementarity with, and staying connected, going for dinner, for a beer, having a coffee, continuing to build the network. And that's really critical because you have to maintain it. You not only have to meet people, but you have to build and engage with them and, and stay connected. Business isn't done between companies. It's done between people. Let's talk about TIAP for a moment. The acronym TIAP, the Toronto Innovation Acceleration Partners, I've heard people say TIAP, TIAP, you're the boss. What do you say? TIAP is where we come at it from. Toronto Innovation Acceleration Partners, formerly known as Mars Innovation. We started in 2008 as an organization that was funded through an initial federal injection of capital. This year is our 15th year. I've been with the organization essentially for 15 years and seen the evolution of the organization. That's been quite a journey and it's been extremely exciting. It's an exciting time. Why does TAP exist? What is its mission? TAP's mission is to bring health science innovation to life. What does that mean? Well, we walk the halls of the academic institutions up and down University Avenue to identify interesting and emerging technologies in the healthcare space that have the potential to have an impact on human health. A lot of researchers do great science. Toronto is certainly known for being one of the world's leading clusters of scientific innovation. The University of Toronto ranked in the top 10 institutions globally for life sciences. And we've got powerhouse institutions like the University Health Network, SickKids, Sinai. Great research happening in the walls of these institutions, nature, science, publications on a daily, weekly basis. Translation and output has always been disconnected from the context of commercialization. And that was really the original premise of the then Mars innovation was to support and enhance and enable more effective translation and commercialization out of the academic institutions. So you're the vehicle. We are one of the vehicles that drive emerging commercialization. Our mandate is really at that front end where there is some foundational intellectual property. How do we think about the original business plan? How do we think about the original team? How do we think about access to original capital? And how do we think about structuring the relationship between the company and the institution where the IP comes from. We do a lot of that foundational initial work that's required to set the company up for success. We always joke that our objective as individuals, as an organization in a company is to be fired because if we're fired, that means we've set it up properly and the company has been able to raise capital and has been able to bring in a permanent team to really move the asset forward and the technology forward. And so that's how we define success. And also if we're fired and the opportunity didn't work for whatever reason, whether it's market or technology driven, and we fail fast and we fail quick. You started in December of 2008 as a consultant and you didn't really have anybody to answer to at the time because there wasn't a CEO, correct? There wasn't a CEO, but there was a board of directors that was put in place right out of the gates, had a lot of visibility with the board, had a lot of visibility with Ilsa and Tony, had the opportunity to write the playbook. It was really exciting because 
we were learning on a day-to-day basis. And we were working with the community, working with the academic institutions to really figure out how we were actually going to operationalize the vision of enhancing commercialization outcome from the largest research ecosystem. Six months after you started in June 2009, Rafi Hofstein was hired as the president and CEO. And shortly afterward, you were offered the position of vice president commercialization. I'm guessing that you and Rafi spent 10-year run just building companies. And I'm wondering what that time was like. It was dynamic and it was a lot of fun. So Rafi joined in June of 2009, coming from Israel. I still remember the very first day. It was very quiet. It was a big recruit for the community. And we as consultants and day-to-day operators of the then Mars Innovation found out who the CEO was going to be on the Saturday before he joined on the Monday, based on the Globe and Mail article that was published. It was pretty quiet and hush-hush because it was a big recruit. We found out at the same time the rest of the world found out. That was an amazing experience to learn from someone like Rafi. He has real tenacity. He really has the drive and the motivation to move through all the barriers and make something happen. One of the things that I would say I've learned from Rafi is just keep pushing forward and making your way through the barriers one step at a time. There'll be a lot of stuff that comes in front of you, but you just got to keep soldiering forward. And he was a tank commander. That was the attitude and the approach that Rafi took in the context of Mars Innovation. How large was the team on that Monday morning? There was three of us, all consultants. Very quickly, the team went from three to five to 10. You know, at the peak, the team was about 30 people. Seen and had the pleasure of building the team while we wrote the playbook on what Mars Innovation is and was, and been through the growth of the organization and then the rationalization of the organization as we reorganized and restructured over the last several years. There are 10 members there's Cam H. The, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, Holland Blurview, Kids Rehabilitation Hospital, Sinai Health, OICR, the Ontario Institute of Cancer Research, Sick Kids Hospital, Unity Health Toronto, Sunnybrook Research Institute, UHN, the University Health Network, U of T, of course, the University of Toronto, and Mars. And each year, these members are collectively awarded about $1.5 billion to support academic research and commercialization for startups and companies looking for funding. What role do you play with those organizations? I think that's evolved over time as the organization has evolved. I think the original business model of the Mars Innovation, the now TAP, was a model that really was a forced model, I would say, where the academic institutions had to work with Mars Innovation and had to share their intellectual property. And it was a contractual contribution that was set up. You know how it is when you're told that you have to do something. You know, it often doesn't work very well. And and over the first five to seven years of the organization, we were just figuring out the dynamics of how the organization worked with these partners and these institutions each of which is world-leading, has huge brand recognition globally. Over time, we really moved and have moved towards a model of providing value and creating programming 
that is complementary to the activities and the resources that the institutions have so that we can be viewed as a partner. And that's really the evolution that PIAP, the then Mars Innovation, has gone through over the last decade is from this model of you have to work with us and we do all things for all people to we have some really interesting programs and investment programs for company creation and technology de-risking. And we think they're competitive and we think they add a lot of value. And we believe that we are one of the contributors in the community and the ecosystem that you should partner with and work with. That's been a mindset shift over the last decade and especially over the last three years since I've been in the role of CEO. TAP has really had a mind shift where we are a partner of choice because we believe that the programs that we offer and the investment opportunities that we offer are competitive and are what complements the institution's capabilities. At first, you were the partner of necessity, and over time and building network, you became the partner of choice. Perfectly said. That's exactly how the evolution has happened. As a result of that, I'm really excited to say that from a stakeholder perspective, the partnership is really the strongest it's ever been in the context of the organization, in the context of the opportunities. We're really excited. To that end, this recording is being done on July 26th, and there was an announcement in yesterday's Globe and Mail. Could you tell us about that? In the interest of partnership and in the interest of collaboration, we've been working with several organizations in the community and the ecosystem to see how we could better leverage the resources and leverage the expertise that's available for entrepreneurs and emerging companies. And so we had the opportunity to partner with Obayo Mora and her team to really see how we could put forward a proposal that would allow us to create an entire continuum of helping emerging health companies in specific domains like AI, cybersecurity, 5G, robotics, medical device, how we could help them from inception to procurement between TAP and Obio, as well as a few other delivery partners that are part of the program there's an entire continuum there where we get involved at the very front end with the academic institutions, with the innovators, where we develop the original plan, provide some de-risking seed funding to get these companies going, moving, help build talent around them. And then an opportunity as they grow and develop for additional education and talent programs that are offered by Obio, as well as their procurement programs like their EIN program. Our U-Test and Venture Builder program are directly complementary to their EIN and educational programming. And so we put it together in a continuum, went to the Ontario government as part of their critical technologies initiative, and were able to secure just about $10 million to support this initiative. And it's the only life sciences proposal that was supported by the province. Kudos and thanks to Minister Fideli and the Ontario government for providing that funding. We've had the privilege and pleasure of having Maura Campbell on this podcast as a guest a few months ago. She is another former competitive athlete who could still run circles around most people. If you haven't had an opportunity to listen to that interview, she is 
fascinating. Just a delight to speak with. Great leader, great collaborator, and, uh, and I'm so excited for the opportunity to work with her and her team in the context of this initiative. And I think there's opportunities to do much more. And from my perspective, this is just the beginning. We're going to take a moment here and, and ask a couple of favors. First, if you're enjoying listening to this podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a quick review and rating on whatever social platform you're using today. Secondly, we will also greatly appreciate you promoting us on social with the hashtags NGBIdeas and NGBI. That's it. Let's get back to the show. Looking back to your role, it sounds like you were given a front row seat at one of the most important life sciences innovation hubs in North America. Absolutely. It's been an absolutely exciting experience, and it's certainly been an honor over the last three years specifically to be in a leadership role here at TAP. And I think we've accomplished a lot as an organization and as a community from reorganizing and retooling the organization to really engaging the community and the membership to strengthening our balance sheet and our partnerships. One of the big things that we did last year was recruit a significant investment from Amgen to make an investment into this ecosystem around supporting a drug discovery program called Lab 150, which is one of our pre-venture programs. Amgen wrote a $10 million chat to make an investment right here in downtown Toronto to help support translation of early drug discovery programs into company creation opportunities. We've been really excited about the partnership with Amgen, and it's brought not only capital, but more importantly, real expertise in drug discovery and development. And it's also brought Amgen Ventures into the Canadian ecosystem. And as you are very well aware, you know, Amgen Ventures has been very active in the Canadian context, more recently just been involved in a couple of deals, including in Versago. We're lucky to have them as part of the community. I'd like to go back to your journey. In 2019, 10 years into your run at TAP, Rafi announced he was retiring. You didn't know he was showing up. Did you know he was leaving? He did share with me. It was actually at a JP Morgan conference where he pulled me aside and said, this is my time. I've been here for 10 years. We've accomplished a lot. And now it's my time to step away. And this was essentially in January of 2019. The board at the time engaged a third-party search firm to do a search for the next CEO, and I was honored to be selected by the board as the next CEO and successor for Rafi. Did you have to think about throwing your hat in the ring, or was that something that you said, okay, I'm in? I would say that from my perspective, you know, I'd spent the last 10 years working with Rafi, seeing the evolution of the organization, heard the feedback from the community, and I really was really excited about the opportunity to see how we could add, expand, and grow TAP to the next level. And, you know, I had full intention and full conviction to put my name into the competitive process. Like I say, I'm extremely honored that I've had the opportunity to serve the community. So they gave you the master key to the office and said, here you go, there's your new title. And oh, by the way, it's April 2020 and there's a little pandemic going on. <laughs> what was your first thought as you accepted that position? And was your first memo to the staff to say, go home? 
That's absolutely right. The formal handoff between Rafi and I happened at the board level in February of 2020. I took over right then, literally three weeks before pandemic was declared. My first interaction as CEO, and, and in fact, to be frank and honest, I actually wasn't supposed to start until April 1st of 2020. But as soon as the last board meeting in February, Rafi had departed for Israel and ended up getting stopped because of the pandemic and wasn't able to return based on all the restrictions and the grounded flights. I actually stepped into the role several weeks before I was anticipated. In fact, I didn't even have authority to do sign-offs and have banking authority. And my first major decision I had to make was, are we shutting down the office or not? It was a time where, as I reflect on the last three years, I certainly have learned a lot in the context of resiliency. That has been something that has been a real challenge, working from home. I'm a very social person, very externally focused, and having to take on this role and immediately have to work from home and be isolated was a real challenge for me personally. I think we persevered and come out the other end, but you know, those three years were extremely challenging. I cannot imagine drinking from a fire hose under those circumstances. TAP was created in 2009, and it's invested in over 70 companies in sectors like therapeutics, medical devices, digital health, and AI. Those companies, I understand, have raised in excess of $600 million from global investors and created more than 1,000 jobs. And I think anyone hearing those stats would agree that TAP plays an important role in the Ontario life sciences sector. I'm wondering, with your experience and your perspective, where are we sitting today and where do you think we're going to be in three to five years? And I'm not just talking about TAP, I'm talking about the overall sector in Ontario. Some of those stats are a little bit old. I'd just like to say that the companies have now raised over a billion dollars in capital, in fact, 1.2, 1.3. It's been a, an exciting time. And I can say, Jim, sitting in the seat for the last 15 years, where we were then and where we are now, we've come light years ahead. We have U.S. investors now having offices here in Canada. We have a J-Lab right here in downtown Toronto. We have the new Tower of Mars that we're sitting in that's not so new anymore, but that has come up in the last 12, 13 years. You're seeing all of the growth across the street at the Schwartz-Reisman Innovation Center. Toronto and Canada become on the global stage for AI. Companies are coming here. Investors are coming here. We're building lots and lots of emerging companies. And the programs have proliferated. The support for entrepreneurs, the support for company creation, the attitude, the mindset has really shifted over the last decade. We've come a great way. There's still a lot to do. I think we do a great job in Ontario and in Canada in the context of building companies, getting startups started, getting them to a place where they have the founding team, they have some capital, maybe even a Series A, although financial markets are tight right now in the context of access to capital. But generally speaking, you know that's going to change. And I think we do a great job at that front end. Where we need to improve and do a better job is really help supporting these life sciences companies grow and scale and become real anchor companies in Canada and, and not have these little escape mechanisms to the U.S. 
there's still a lot of work to do in that regard to help support these companies to go from series A to B and C and IPO and really create that talent and that recycling mechanism here to have well-seasoned, well-experienced teams that then can then start their next opportunity and their next opportunity. And so that's where we need to go. I think as a community, the way we get there honestly has to be through collaboration. And dare I even say the word consolidation in the context of resources and programs that are available out there. Are you suggesting that some of the organizations out there should look seriously at consolidating? I think there's a huge opportunity in the context of providing entrepreneurs and companies sufficient resources and sufficient programming that have scale and breadth to ensure that we can now take these companies to the next level. That's the opportunity for us. And I can certainly say from TAP's perspective and TAP's board's perspective, we're looking to be at the leadership role in, in that area. You know, we're looking at lots of different opportunities. And the partnership with Obio, as I say, is just the beginning. There's lots of opportunities to collaborate, to link programs together, to really make sure that we bring these companies from the beginning of inception and creation and take them all the way to the end. There's still lots of work to be done on that side, but the only way we're going to get there is through collaboration and, dare I say, consolidation. Break down those silos. Absolutely. I'm wondering if there is a specific focus that you're seeing or if there's something that you wish came across your desk more often these days. You know, what we are seeing that is a lot of what is coming across our desk is really in the applications and the interface of AI, machine learning, and healthcare. So we are seeing lots of opportunities at that interface. And really the challenge is going to be how do we grow and scale these opportunities because there's lots of them. And are there opportunities, again, to put them together in a way that builds scale and commercial viability? That's what we're seeing a lot of is that interface of AI, digital, and how that enables, helps in the context of deployment of therapies, deployment of healthcare, deployment of all aspects of health. You're speaking with startups every day. And when a founder comes into your office to meet you, are there some big no's or absolute yeses they should be aware of beforehand? Like I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners will appreciate hearing any advice that comes to mind. Like what's the biggest mistake you see in your world? I mean, in the context of emerging companies, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we're seeing is ensuring that you're building the right team and capabilities around you. Capital will come for the right team and the right opportunity. There's a dearth of capital out there in the context of venture funds. Capital has no boundaries anymore in the context of geographic boundaries. The amount of venture capital out there in the community is significant and material, and it's sitting on the sidelines, right? And, and certainly the markets right now are a bit challenging, but the team piece is really the foundational critical piece that we really spend a lot of time on and see lots of mistakes around. And with the right team, capital will come. So the right team, the right people, get that lined up and then we can talk. That's how we think about it. It's always a three-legged stool, technology, team, and capital. There's a lot of technology. I mean, we're in the center of technology in the context of innovation and science. People, that's really 
the core. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about people and how we bring the right people to bear, how we bring the right advisors to bear around the opportunity through our network. Once you have technology and you have people, capital will follow. Thank you for that advice. Let's stay on the advice tag for a moment. What's the best piece of advice you've been given personally, professionally? Perseverance and resiliency is required in our industry. Got to keep marching forward. It's a tough business at the early stage, at the mid stage, at the late stage. You just got to get back up and keep marching forward. I would say perseverance and resiliency is key to success in this industry. We all have a bucket list and I have fun asking this question. What's on yours, sir? On my bucket list is the vision of taking this ecosystem to the next level in the context of ensuring that we can really create now with the life sciences focus that we have and the life sciences industry that we have. The next step and the next stage is really around making sure that we can build and grow these companies and have these companies stay and recycle. And I'm looking forward to how we at TAP together with our other collaborators and partners can really design programs and get access to support to really enable that next generation of growth of these companies. That's really where I see the next three to five years for TAP as an organization. And for me personally, in the context of what I want to see, I want to see more of these larger series A, B, C companies staying here, growing here, building the talent here, bringing management to bear and seeing the recycling of talent. That's a great goal. Thank you for that. We finish each interview with this question, which I know you know is coming. What is the next great big idea on your horizon? From my perspective, the next great big idea on the horizon is more a concept, I would say. And the concept is kind of the thesis that I've been talking about is the next great big idea has to come from collaboration. We, as a community, need to more effectively collaborate across all our programming and across all the supports that we have. And that's where the next great big idea is. Well said, sir. I know that you are a very busy man. I really appreciate you making the time to join us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jim. It's been an honor and a privilege, as I say. You've had some great leaders on this series and appreciate you reaching out and giving me the opportunity. It's my pleasure. Thanks again. That was Paramal Nathwani, President and CEO of the Toronto Innovation Acceleration Partners. You can find out more about TAP at TAP, that's T-I-A-P dot C-A, and you can follow them on social at TAP Toronto. If you'd like to follow us on social, we are at NGB Ideas, and you can follow our day job team at Lab Occupier. This week's episode was researched and edited, as usual, by Tisha Prasad. If you'd like to contact me, email is best, and that address is jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D dot com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>